And then an hour into the meeting says, there's actually a reason I've called you into my office today. You don't dress appropriately for a female clergy member. And as bright as you are, people are staring at your hemline more than they're listening to what you say. You have a very attractive body and it is dangerous. She said, no woman will trust their husband with you, nor their boyfriend with you because of the way you look. have a deep desire to be seen, but often preventing us actually being seen is some sense of shame. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm in the midst of a 52-week challenge to find happiness and get rid of my own Sondra lust. This has challenged me to allow myself to fully be seen, and I've run headfirst into some shame. Now, my shame monsters usually revolve around my personhood, and in particular, my own body. To combat that and move forward, I had an incredible conversation with author, researcher, and therapist, Hillary McBride. I met you through my dear friend, Mike McCarg, and uh, my other friend who we know as Vishnu Das, but the rest of the world knows as Michael Gungor. That's right. And you were speaking at, well, I heard you on a podcast first, I believe. Yeah. Oh, Didn't probably me? on the liturgist or yeah. something. Or, yeah. Okay. I interviewed you on that. Yeah. And then you spoke at the last gathering, which is a gathering of the liturgists, which is a podcast. Um, and you spoke on shame, which I thought mm-hmm. was incredible. Mm-hmm. So thank you for doing that. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. What I would love to talk to you about today. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is some of this is the good physical and mental health piece, but it yeah. also bleeds into work. So what we're finding is these all kind of bleed into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So for me... Uh, I was really interested in uh, your work on shame uh, and your book, which is called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are. (laughs) Correct. Um, (laughs) Because I happen to share a little bit of history with you in that uh, Mm. I had some difficulties with eating when I was in college my senior year. And for me, it was more paired with the need to control. Um, Oh, sure. Yeah. And I couldn't control much. And so I went to what I could control which was what was going into my body. Um, The problem with me is I now have this very strange dichotomy where I get attention for not looking like a female pastor. That attention turns to shame. Right. But I want to be a normal woman. Yes. So getting noticed for being attractive is something that I feel like is something that I would like to do. So there is this hate Mm -hmm. of my body either for being too sexualized or not sexualized enough. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I would love to hear sort of your ideas around uh, some of what I just said uh, as far as what um, what do you feel like, have you dealt with women who are leaders who have shared with you this feeling? Because I don't think it's just the church. I think women who are CEOs, women who are a lot of things have dealt with this issue of you got to be sexy, but not sexy, oh, too yeah. sexy. Oh, yeah. And that's something we actually have a name for, right? It's so common among women that it's something we call the double bind phenomena, that women are feeling like like they are more valued socially for appearing a certain way, but then that diminishes their experience of being fully human. And so they lose on either end. No matter what happens, there's a sense of loss. Like I'm stuck between two options that are are both good and both hurtful to me. And so it leaves mm. them often feeling like they, yeah, they miss out on something or they're losing something regardless of how people treat them. 
So it's, it's pretty normal, um, unfortunately. And I, I would refer to normal as something that's regularly occurring as opposed to something that's uh-huh. ideal for our experience of being human. But it happens so frequently among women who are in positions of power or leadership. I would say yes in the church, but also think about moms, moms who are told you, you could be valuable if you still retained a sense of being sexy because then you haven't become a mom. But then, but then there's also a sense of feeling like, well, if you're too sexy, then you're not trustworthy and you're not a good caretaker and you're too focused on your appearance. And so I see that show up for so many women in lots of different areas of their life. And unfortunately, research shows us that women who have a little bit of sex appeal often do better in job interviews and get more attention from other people. But there's a very fine line between when that becomes something that people will actually shame women for. And unfortunately, it's not always men who are shaming women for being too sexy. Sometimes it's women, right? There's a, there can be a comparison between us as women where we feel like we're only as good Uh, We're only good enough if we're better than the person next to us. We're only sexy if we're sexier. So there's this kind of hierarchy of comparison. And so women often do this to each other where there isn't room for all of us to be beautiful or attractive in our own way. There's a comparison and a hierarchy and there's always going to be someone at the top and always someone at the bottom. So I think all of these. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's interesting that even like the word sexy brings up something in me having, even though Mm -hmm. I grew up in, so my parents are uh, pretty progressive and I grew up in, even though I grew up in a Christian culture, I moved to Mississippi. So that's where some of that shaming came in. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But it wasn't coming from my parents necessarily. My my mom and dad uh, both are pretty open folks. And so. Um, but I find that even like the word sexy or is attractive, like those words really have like this almost like, um, yeah. what's the word? I'm, like triggering sense yeah. for me. Yeah. They've got like, some baggage yeah. on them. Yeah, so, totally. I'll share a story with you that, um, yeah, let's hear it. won't, uh, be surprising. And it's one mm. that I haven't actually shared in public yet. Uh, partly mm. because this person is still in power. Um, okay. And is in a pretty high level in our church system. And people can't figure out who she is now because now I've said it within our system. But anyway, so this person (laughs) uh, called me in about two years ago, maybe a year ago, actually, um, and is no longer above me. Otherwise, I wouldn't (laughs) be talking about it. But uh, called me in and said, uh, I would love to talk to you. You're going to take on this new position of... uh, of being a, a, a pastor who's doing a church plant. And we're really excited about that. And then said, okay. you know, I've seen you on all these, you know, I, I feel like I see you everywhere. You're speaking at this event or you're, you know, you, you did this thing over here for the Western jurors. You've done all these things. And she said, I just think you're the, the next face to face of United Methodism. So you're hearing this from like an older woman who okay. uh, has really like risen in the ranks and you think, sure. Oh, this is really kind. Um, and I'm a little intimidated, but okay. And kept mm-hmm. going and just sort of building up like, you're so talented, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. For about an hour, asked me how they, she could resource me. Was there anything I needed? And then um, an hour into the meeting says, there's actually a reason I've called you into my office today. Oh. You don't dress appropriately for a female clergy member. Wow. And as bright as you are, people are staring at your hemline more than they're listening to what you say. You have a very attractive body, and this is where it gets really rough, and it is dangerous. She said, no man, no, sorry, no woman 
will trust their husband with you mm-hmm. nor their boyfriend with you because of the way you look. Now, I will admit wow. that I dress more trendy. I'm not really a scandalous dresser. Mm. Um, definitely, you know, my clothes come from mostly Target. So they're more of, <laughs> they're yeah. more of the, uh, you could probably like uh, scold me for not only using fair trade clothing, but they're not like, they're not the, sh- the scandalous clubbing no. outfits. No. Um, and I have worked really hard to balance feeling like I fit into the culture so that folks feel a sense of uh, connection to me. Of course, yeah. yeah. And in that moment, Hillary, I almost quit. I mm. walked out. She asked me, like, how, like, almost like, you know, sexual harassment, if you want to call it that, said that to me, said you are, you know, your body is dangerous. People only look at your hemline. Mm. I mean, to hear that mm-hmm. and to, like, realize that I have, pretty much lived into purity culture in so many ways, right? Right. I am not a scandalous person. I don't date all the time. I'm not sleeping around. I'm dangerous. And I walked out. Your body, not even your body, just because it's a female body. Yep. So I got in my car and wept for like 30 minutes and called my friend and was pretty much done. Like, what do I do? You know, it's not like, like this job has taken so much. I haven't been able to have a normal dating life. I haven't been able to do the things that I feel like most people get to do because I have Mm -hmm. been trying to live up to this ideal. And for Mm -hmm. her to say that was so damaging and I'm not sure I'm over it. Yeah. And it's that thing of a woman. It's women who do this to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was going to be my comment is that, that as women, we can participate in our own sexual objectification that we can pass the messages between us that keep each other feeling like we're just objects. And it sounds like that's something that, that she believed about women's bodies and in her opinion was trying to help you or guide you or warn you, but actually was, was passing on this oppressive narrative of women's bodies as, as something that you should take on more. And I'm just so sorry that that was something that was communicated to you at all. I mean, it would have been horrific if it came from a male. It would have been, it is horrific that it came from another woman, mm-hmm. but so not about you, but about this narrative in patriarchy about women's bodies being dangerous. And that's why we need to, um, we need to devalue them. We need to objectify them. Um, or because we objectify them, they're dangerous because they're so powerful. Like, I think that that's a, a component is that people have confused the, the power, power and the mystery and the uh, strength and the attractiveness of women's bodies just as they are with being dangerous in the church. That anything that feels like it could be powerful might be threatening to our understanding of the gospel or understanding of, of patriarchy. Right. But wow. I'm just so sorry that that was communicated to you <laughs> at all. I mean, it's one of those things that I think you had us do uh, close our eyes and think about. Mm. Situ- and that was the thing that popped in my head was sitting in that office mm. as this woman who was in a suit and wondering wow. even if what I was wearing, I was wearing, um, I even remember exactly what I was wearing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Because I was like, well, thank gosh, I was just wearing like a, a fairly conservative outfit because what if I had, you know, happened to dress how I normally would. I mean, it was just one of those experiences of, of asking, is it possible for someone to uh, be powerful as a woman and to be Mm. um, 
to just be known for their abilities. And I, I don't mm-hmm. think it is. I think there's this weird dichotomy we've created and the shame atmosphere around. Yeah. Um, and I do it too. Like it's so easy for me to say things like, Oh, she's cute. I like her, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a snap judgment that we all do. Um, and I'm wondering how much this is playing into my um, difficulty in my job, because the thing I, I said in one of the first episodes and it keeps coming back to me is I just want to be human. And it feels like yeah. in this job, I can't be a human. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's true because people have all sorts of ideas about what they expect about you because you're a woman that they would never say if you were a man. It's There's a, a local politician from where I'm from in, in the lower mainland in Vancouver, uh, BC. And he, as a political statement, without telling anyone, wore the same suit to work for a year. Same shirt, same suit. And then at the end of the year said, hey, everybody, listen up. I did something and you didn't even notice it. But you've said something about my female colleagues who show up and wear the same thing twice in a week. And he was making a statement about how, as women, we are expected to be attractive. Because if we're not, then we're frumpy or dowdy or whatever the word is. But if we're too attractive, then it's threatening and it's dangerous. And there's this impossible line in the middle that we're expected to meet that actually has nothing to do with how we should dress, but rather about, I think, the way that our construction of gender roles makes it difficult for people to value women just for being human. Mm-hmm. There's there's some really interesting kind of research about that, about how... Um, kind of like I was alluding to before, women who are considered to be attractive are more likely to get a certain job, but then at a certain level of power, then they're actually criticized for being attractive. And I mean, depending on which kind of feminist, uh, radical feminist or Marxist feminist author or thinker you're, you're referring to, but the idea can be, actually, this is also comes through in uh, Naomi Wolf's Beauty Myth, that book, um, that really kicked off the third wave of feminism. But it it seems to be that when women are focused on their appearance and when other people are focused on women's appearance, it distracts us from listening to what the woman is saying and the way that she's living her life. And that, some people would say, is actually part of the oppression of women, that we keep ourselves and keep each other focused on on what we look like and whether we're sexy enough or pretty or too pretty or whatever it is, instead of focusing on our ideas that we, what a wonderful distraction from the things that women have to say if we're always focused on how we're looking. Well, it's interesting too, because I think I worry about, okay, I know there's a certain level of um, people don't mind me speaking in front of things because I look like the folks around them or, right. um, and, and when you get, as you start to get older, Mm-hmm. which is happening for me. I'm starting to get older. It's such a, a fear that I'm losing my value. Yeah. I'm losing my uh, my ability to be seen as... Mm-hmm. My ability to be seen. I remember one yes. of my yes. secretaries saying to me, I had this incredible administrative assistant, and she said to me one time, you know, it's going to be hard for you when you age. And I was like, mm. what? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. She said, you've always looked younger than you are. She said, but at a certain time, she's like, that was the case for me too. She said, but when I hit my 40s, I started to become invisible. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, like that. Mm. And I can't get that out of my head. And I think 
For me, the relationship I have between my body, which I'm always frustrated, I could never be fit enough. I could never be skinny yeah. enough. It's yeah. like something that's always in my head. Because even like the realization that I wasn't healthy that last couple of semesters in college. Yeah. I look at those pictures, man, I'd love to get back to her. Right. Um, she just was so fit in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's it's this fear of running away from being ignored but I better not be paid too much attention to. Right. Yeah. It's the double bind. It is the double bind. And you know, what's, what's funny about what you're saying. So I, for my dissertation research as part of my PhD, I'm actually looking at how women, women who are aging and have actually been told that they're invisible because they're menopausal or because they're, you know, they're just kind of growing up and they're just aging in a society where we value, value youthfulness and thinness and, you know, this, the sex appeal of a woman who has so much potential in her life and energy and all of that. I'm looking at women who actually feel like that's liberated them and they feel more free than ever because although they're invisible for the, from the eye or to the eye that's passing judgment on them. And that can feel frustrating or discouraging if that's something that's really valuable to them. There's also a freedom in knowing oh, wait, nobody cares anymore. And so I just get to be who I am and who I've always wanted to be. And I don't have to play the game. And so this is actually a phenomenon that I'm, I'm spending you know, a few years researching is these women who feel even more free than ever through their age, because I think that we don't tell that story often enough. The story is, yes, you will become invisible as you age. And that's actually a problem. Well, what if the gaze the male gaze, the female gaze that was making you visible was something that was reducing your humanity. Mm-hmm. What if it was something that that actually you were participating in a game that made you less human? And I think that it's okay to feel the struggle inside you of, oh man, that double bind. I, I know that I would be given much more social value if I looked a certain way, but what is it costing me to play that game? What is it costing me to feel like my focus and my energy is on how I look or what I'm wearing or what other people are thinking about how I look or other people are thinking about what I'm wearing? It's actually distracting me from the things that I'm most excited about in life, which are, you know, for you sharing, sharing in your role as a reverend, as a pastor, all of the things that Jesus does for us and, and what it means to be fully human in the church and and so I think that the lie that we can get sucked into is is painful. But then sometimes as women who are conscious of those of those of the discourse and the dialogue, we can then shame ourselves for getting con- for getting stuck in the discourse and the dialogue. Uh-huh. And what we need to do instead is say, this is just costing me way too much of my potential and my energy and my, my value and my ability to contribute meaningfully to the world. And so instead of shaming myself and instead of focusing on how I look exclusively, I'm going to remind myself that there's so much more to who I am. And I'm going to let those things take up space in my mind and in my thought life. And I'm going to put my energy there. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things that I'm, so I have a eight year old niece. Okay. And she looks, she is, she creepily looks a little like John Benet Ramsey. She's gorgeous. Oh, okay, okay. Just a beautiful child. Um, yeah. Always has been, and uh, lives in Alabama. And so when we walk around with her, um, just the constant comments are, "Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, what a pretty little girl." Mm-hmm. Now, since that you know that started at a very young age, but now she's eight. 
Yeah. And she's taller than all the kids because uh, our family has a history of growing tall fast. <laughs> okay. And then for me, I just didn't keep going. My brother kept going. <laughs> um, so my dad's tiny. My mom's like tall-ish. Okay. Um, they're the same height now because of shrinking. But uh, for my niece, she's now kind of in that awkward phase a little bit, you know, mm. that the tweens. Mm-hmm. And I am wondering how it affects her, a little yeah. girl who constantly heard, you're so pretty, you're so yeah. cute. And yeah. so the other day I asked her, I said, Anna, do you know that you're just so beautiful? And she said, Aunt Sarah, I get so tired of hearing that. Wow. <laughs> and wow. I, was, I was like, oh, okay. She's like, I hear it all the time. And I yeah. said, and I said to my brother, we've got to just start making really like conscious efforts to say to Anna, you're so smart. You're yes, so strong. Exactly. Yeah. You're just skilled. What book are you reading? What book are you reading? What do you want to be when you grow up? What yeah. ideas are you interested in now? What kind of food do you like to eat? What's your favorite way to feel alive? Yeah. What's your favorite character in a book? Like all of those kinds of things that divert attention away from appearance, but to other valuable aspects of her, of her humanity. Because I think wow. in some ways I've become a, an unintentionally a really superficial person. Mm. And I and that's one of the things I'm struggling with as I'm as I'm dating, as I'm uh, because the value I put on other people's appearance is way mm. higher than it should be. Not in my right. friends, not in my friendships, not at all, but in my uh, the people I'm attracted to. You know, right. I I hate to, the number of guys I've dated that this sounds like a like a humble brag, but I've okay. dated I've dated some guys that happen to have at one point been models in their lives, um, right? And it made me feel good, and it made mm. me feel attracted to them, and it made mm-hmm. me feel like my worth must be higher because why would they choose me? Um, yeah. And so I look at like these men who I get so frustrated with with their trophy yeah. wives, and I'm like, but Sarah Heath, you kind of want a trophy husband, right? Um, right. Yeah. And so this idea and peace and the work that you're doing around seeing more than just that, it's like mm-hmm. I think my heart wants to say, oh, yes, yes. But my practice of how I yes. how I move around in the world is not that. And I hate it. Well, if you think about it, well, first of all, I want to say I'm so moved by your level of self-awareness. I'm actually <laughs> really impressed by your in willingness to acknowledge that because I think that's the the inner script that drives most people, but they're actually too um, too unaware to name it or too insecure to name it because it seems like that would make them feel shallow. So I'm I'm just really impressed by your humility and by your awareness and by your desire to actually acknowledge that and do something different. Um, it reminds me of so many of the conversations I have with my clients and my therapeutic work, which is to help people realize that belonging and social value is an important part of being human, that we are wired for connection and we are wired for belonging and we are wired to feel like, like we matter to people. But the story that we've been told most of our lives in particularly in North America is that belonging is secured by being attractive and by being desirable physically to other people, particularly as women. Sometimes Uh men are told that plus or instead money or status or um, having a woman who is attractive. But we were told that we could actually secure that belonging, that we would be desirable, that we would be valued if we looked a certain way. 
And so it's hard to disentangle those two thoughts from from each other because one of them is actually very, very healthy and good, which is it's okay to want to be a part of something. It's okay to want to feel like you matter to people. But when we focus on trying to do that by achieving a certain appearance or by being with someone who appears a certain way or by valuing appearance more than anything else, we actually create this conditional cycle of belonging, which is only attainable if we look a certain way and nobody can look a certain way all the time, No, not in a very specific sliver of their life and certainly not across the lifespan. Because like you were saying, if being attractive and being seen as sexy and desirable and youthful is something that's made you feel valuable and it has actually made you feel valuable, then guess what happens when you age? Because your value has been conditional upon how you look, then two things happen for women as they age. They either feel like, oh crap, I don't matter anymore. Or, "Uh uh-oh, I better work harder than ever. And I better pull in all the resources I can, the Botox, the surgery, the, you know, the incredible diets to try and maintain a certain look because I'm scared of not feeling valuable anymore. And so if we can separate those two and see that one, it's really good. It's really good to want to belong, but two, we can't do that in ways that are conditional and we can't do that in ways that are oppressive to us as humans and diminish the full value of who we are. Because what happens then is if we're desired for how we look, then we're just one bad hair day, one bad makeup day, one bloated period away from feeling like we don't matter as a human. Yeah. Yeah. And I will admit to like having those like fears, like the real, Mm -hmm. and then having the shame of like, but you're a Christian and you're known as a Christian, you're known as a pastor. Like, yeah. And it's, it's hard too, because I feel like I fell into this category of none that I never Mm. meant to, you know, I became a a spiritual leader that has an asexual um, presence in the world. It's like, but that's not who I used to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that makes me think of how other people's stories of women who are spiritual leaders get in the way of you experiencing the fullness of that, of yourself in that role. And that there's competing stories here. There's one, one story about who you know yourself to be. And then there's another story, which is the collective sociocultural story about what it means to be a woman in the church and in leadership. And those are competing for priority for you. And so I would encourage you to find, to find a way to connect with the story that you feel like is most most true and most honoring of the fullness of your humanity, including your sexuality, including your, um, your desire to feel valuable, not for appearance reasons. And to remind yourself of those things as often as possible and to find people who support that story for you. So that when, when you go into meetings with women in the church who say, uh, uh-uh, your hemline, no, it's a distraction that you have a place to go where people say, I'm so sorry. And here are all of the things that are true about you that she didn't honor. And we're going to remind you of those to inoculate you against the other story that you're constantly bombarded with. I think that's a really helpful thing. And I, and then I want to honor that in other people because I, yes. yeah, you know, <laughs> Mike, uh, so science Mike is this guy who's also a podcaster and a friend of mine. And we have really have had for the last five years, such a close friendship. And, Mm -hmm. um, he's met, you know, before the two years of not really dating, he met two of the guys I was dating. And, um, his point to me was always like, 
why don't you date like a chubby guy who's thankful for you? (laughs) (laughs) Instead of, instead of the, like, instead of the guy who like, walks on the beach and girls faint. Um, right. He's like, cause in the end, we're gonna be there for you. But yeah. it feels to me like a settling that says, oh, I guess now that I'm older, I can't do that anymore. Right. And it's so hard because like, and my friend and I have been doing this challenging challenge together where we've both been doing Bumble and Tinder. And she found this guy, um, in Portland, actually, uh, mm-hmm. who's incredibly attractive and incredibly kind and a mm. nurse. And like, I'm like, why can't that be? The, why does it either have to be like, oh, just like average cool dude or they are the worst <laughs> like human right. um, and not worst human, but they've gotten away with so much um, and then you're nervous. Like, are they going to leave? Mm. Because there's. Yeah. It's this weird thing that is in me, and I, I appreciate you saying that you appreciate me knowing this about me. My fear is I know this about me, and I don't know how to change it. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's okay to not know how to change something, but to keep asking the question. Mm. Like the Rilke, um, the poet Rilke says, you live the question. You live the question. It's not like you you're going to talk to one person and it's all going to make sense because you're trying to sort through competing sources of information and the entire history of what it's been like to be you and the process of aging and growing at the same time. And all of those things are competing for resources in your mind. And of course, there's no clear way forward. So it's okay to live the question and to ask yourself how you're wrestling with those things without assuming necessarily that you arrive at the point where you know, and then you're fixed. I think that life is so much more about the constant refining that happens when we continue to challenge old patterns. Mm. And when the old story comes up and we go, whoa, 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 I want to push back on that. And here's why. I think that's just as much of a victory as if those old stories never showed up in the first place. So I don't think it's a problem if you wrestle with that. But I do want to say, I think that there's lots of ways to be attracted to a person that have nothing to do with how much skin they have around their stomach. Yeah. There is like that to assume that the chubby guy isn't attractive is actually diminishment of his full humanity. Yeah, that's true. So I would encourage you to focus on all of the ways that you feel attracted to people and all of the things that are attractive about aliveness in somebody else. Like, I think that honestly, one of the things that I'm attracted to most in people and not necessarily in a sexual romantic way, but just what draws me to them is when they have a sense of vitality, when they feel like there is a, that they carry wonder with them and that they can see beauty in all sorts of things. And what that tells me is that no matter how I show up to that person, that they will find a way to value me. And so my value isn't conditional on how I, pe- how I appear or if I looked away now that I used to when we first met, but rather that they can see beauty and value and beauty, not just being an appearance term, but being a sense of being drawn towards that there is something sacred or something of, of worth and value and that they can find beauty in all of the things. And I think that that makes me feel like I am valuable to them, but also that I'm a better person than I get to see the world through their eyes. And that to me feels attractive. Well, so I, I would I, encourage Go ahead. No, you. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I think what makes me most excited about your research work, Mm -hmm. um, not just the idea of shame around the body as someone who has struggled with that for a long time, is also the fact that you're working with 
with the whole culture of to be seen, you have to be young. To be seen, mm -hmm. you have to be all these things. Yeah. Um, because as many of those stories as we can get out there, mm -hmm. because I think that is going to change the way culture is entirely. Yeah. yeah. You know, my, um, my mom is this incredible woman, like incredible. Mm -hmm. She survived cancer four times. Oh my goodness. Um, wow. She's had, you know, she just, she's incredible and she's this mm. beautiful spirit and I would no less say that she wasn't beautiful <laughs> just because right. you know she happens to be 67 um but she is this beautiful beautiful soul and I think mm. um the more of those ways we can start challenging culture yes. around these things I'm excited and hopeful that that will happen yeah. Um, and I think that there's a political conversation yes, here too, yes. because I think that, so I'm, I'm doing some phenomenological research for my dissertation and phenomenology is a particular philosophy. Um, it's a branch of philosophy and it's also a method of research and investigating that actually has more to do with having a sense of wonder about things and being curious and wanting to see the things that haven't been seen than it does, um, have a focus on something like numerical value. How many people did this, did this affect? So the less kind of, it's less quantitative and more qualitative looking at the quality of things. And what I'm finding in my phenomenological research and understanding more about phenomenology is that phenomenology as a discipline of philosophy identifies that privilege is associated with seenness. So what are the stories that are most seen and seen both just kind of readily available and appearing, but also held up in a position where people can gaze at them and value them and see them in that way. So what is seen in media is probably the most privileged. It's the thing that we attribute as being both ideal and normal. And so in, from a phenomenological perspective, what we can say, kind of integrating this into a political conversation, is that to make the unseen seen means that we're distributing privilege to people and to, to experiences and uh, ways of being that have particularly or have historically been not given or not been given privilege. And so if we can make visible the things that haven't been visible... If we can give um, a spotlight to stories of human experience that have particularly um, like a silenced quality about them, that they've been either intentionally silenced or just kind of forgotten, that that is a way to see beauty in all things and distribute power and privilege among people. So that privilege isn't held by just the people and the experiences that are seen the most, that we can make lots of things seen. And that's bodies, that's experiences of sexuality, that's um, experiences of life, like being a woman who's a reverend and is working on challenging discourse around femininity, femininity, that's something that is being made seen. Mm. And so we have a political responsibility as people who identify as Christian to usurp stories of privilege and give power back to people whose stories have been silenced. And we can do that by, by valuing and honoring and having a sense of wonder and curiosity and appreciation for the ways that they exist, even if they're typically invisible. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it's uh, it's incredible. <laughs> like that is so exciting <laughs> to me because I think, you know, from very early age, you notice who's on TV. Yeah. I mean, even look at one of our um, bipartisan uh, TV stations. Sure. Who, who's on Fox News? Are these right. blonde, bombshell, very, very young looking folks in general? Mm-hmm. If they're a woman, if they're a man, it kind of just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But I look at what I'm really drawn to, and partly because of my culture, my my mother's British originally, but I love I love the BBC. Sure. <laughs> I, I love British television because mm-hmm. nobody's teeth is perfect. Right. Nobody looks, you know, uh, everyone looks normal. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the difficulties about where I live is nobody looks normal. Right. Everybody. Yeah. At any moment, someone can whip out a, a camera and shoot a TV series. Wow. Yeah. Um, but what would it look like if our TV looked more like British television? If it looked more like uh, where different stories are being told and uh-huh. different ways of being in the world are being celebrated? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the excitement in in the work that you're doing. And I'm so so glad mm-hmm. you're doing that. And I'm so glad that you're even talking about the issue of shame and womanhood and all yeah. of these things because I think until it comes out of the light you know which is happening right now is we hear more and more stories of people saying you know that was me too yeah exactly yeah otherwise you feel shamed and I can't you know I've been reading a lot of those stories today this morning I was just reading the news mm-hmm. and just reading as all these different people are being accused of um, sexual harassment or actual, you know, sexual assault. Mm-hmm. I find it really interesting in my own heart. My first reaction is, do I believe them? Which is not the first reaction I like. Mm-hmm. But I have that. Mm, do I believe That's them? So honest. Yeah. yeah. And then I mm-hmm. go, okay. If I do, then I, I, you know, obviously I, I do. I come from a place of okay. I'm, I'm going to having mm-hmm. had my own experiences. And I, I read and read these stories where. These women don't come out and share their story because they think it doesn't matter until someone else right. says, no, right. it matters. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think what you're you're saying, if we could circle it back to what we talked about yeah. before, is that as women, we have an influence on each other's lives. And that influence can be destructive and reductive and can be to tear each other down and to reduce each other to an appearance that's either something we evaluate as being better or worse than our own. Or we can say, because I've hurt and because you've hurt, we have something in common and we belong to each other and we need each other. And let's create a new story about what it means to be women together, where your story matters to me just because you're human, mm-hmm. just because you went through it. And, and that we have, we have influence over each other. We don't live in isolation. We don't live in, in a vacuum. And so I think we have, we have the choice that we can make about how we treat other women and if we're building each other up or if we're tearing each other down. And I think that ultimately it comes down to those two options. Are we, are we additive to the lives of other women or not? And I love the, you know, the old feminist quote, like no woman is free until all women are free. And that includes women of color. And that includes women who've had experiences of sexual assault, and sexual abuse. Like we, we need to advocate for each other as a way of helping us as individuals experience our own liberation from the restriction of the discourse of femininity, which keeps us feeling like we're only valuable if we look a certain way, that we have so much more to 
to be, to experience, to offer each other. And so I hope that this can be like a call to action for us as women to choose our words for each other carefully and to know that we choose our words for each other carefully because our words matter to each other, because we matter and that other people matter too. I have so appreciated this. I have so appreciated mm. even just like starting to get to know you. I'm excited because I feel like this is going to, we're going to be in each other's lives for a while. So I'm excited about that. Your work is incredible. Your book oh. is incredible. I actually, um, I ordered one for my mom. So I'm excited oh. about that. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> so thank you thank so you. much for the work you do and for just the person that you are. Um, mm, wow. it's, it's incredible. And gives me a lot of hope. So thank you for agreeing to do this. I'm sure I'll call you again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Can I also thank you really briefly? What a beautiful thing to be a person in leadership who is opening up conversations that are vulnerable and authentic and scary to have, because I think what you're doing is you're giving people permission to say, just because you're in leadership, it doesn't mean you have to know all of the things and that you can be in process. And that's actually, that's a kind of leader that I respect even more than someone who says I've got it all together or whatever. And so, wow. Wow, thank you so much for opening up the conversation as a woman in leadership about bodies, about dating, about relationships, about sexuality, about appearance. We need people like you who say, this is the kind of leader I'm going to be. So thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. It means so much to me. As I reflect on my conversation with Hillary, I can't stop thinking about all the barriers and rules that I've put around my own worth. It's both terrifying and exciting to think that we can just show up and be enough. For me, That is what is at the heart of my Sonderlust. I'm afraid that who I am and the life I lead isn't enough. It's exciting to think that not only do I already have enough, but I am enough. And whether it's how I show up to the work that I do, how comfortable I am in my own current fitness, or how I show up to even dating, the idea that I can be seen for who I am and not a false projection is exciting. It's only been two months. I think already all these conversations I've been having and actually trying new things is changing me. And I think it's the beginning of me asking, what if I'm actually worth being seen? I still see you, baby. No, I've been around. Next episode, it's time to check in with John and see if he agrees that changes are happening and if those changes are enough. I'm also going to chat with another lady who knows what it's like to be single and a lady of the cloth. None other than the Reverend Lisa Yeboah. Sonderless, the podcast is hosted by me, Sarah Heath. This episode was produced by myself, Allie Fleming, and Corey Severi. Corey is also our team's editor, and Allie handles our graphic. Our website and marketing is done by Alex Maldonado. Our theme is written and performed by Daniel Robert. You can visit us anytime at www.sonderlessthepodcast.com. And to find out more about yours truly, please visit revsarahheath.com. So until next time, keep looking for your bliss. And thanks so much for listening. We were just kids.